morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Neufeld. For those of you who might not be uh, familiar with who I am, if you haven't seen me before, uh, it's because I am the campus pastor uh, at our promontory location. So we have uh, a campus up on promontory. We meet in the Promontory Heights Elementary School. And so for the most part on Sunday mornings, that's where I am up on the hill. And so it is a very special joy to be able to be with you here uh, this morning. And so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to the book of John. Uh, We're going to be looking at John chapter 18 this morning. And uh, if you've been around here at Central for the past little while, you'll know that we have been doing this series through the book of John for, well, actually several years now. uh, But most recently, uh, we picked it up in John chapter 17, um, and we have been walking through uh, the account of Jesus' life. And really this morning we are coming to what is, what is a turning point in the Gospel of John. For the last uh, five chapters, all the way from 13 through to 17, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. In fact, it, it's all happened really in just one evening, right? Jesus has been sitting in this upper room and he's been teaching his disciples. And so in terms of storyline, in terms of timeline, It's been pretty quiet, right? Jesus sits, talks with his disciples. Well, now chapter 18 takes a turn. Now things are actually starting to happen. Jesus leaves that upper room, and as we're going to see this morning, actually Jesus gets arrested. And so this is really, we're coming into the final act, right? If this were a movie, um, this is sort of, we're leading up to the final showdown at this point. Right? And if you've ever seen sort of these, uh, like a heist movie, right, where these guys have got this big plan, and they're, they're going to steal the diamond or whatever else, right, Ocean's Eleven, that sort of thing, about three quarters of the way through, the main character usually gets arrested, right? This big thing happens, he gets arrested, it seems like the whole plan is about to, to implode on itself, everything's going wrong until the very end, Right? And you realize, actually, that was all part of the plan to begin with. He wanted to get arrested, and he makes this amazing escape, and everything works out well. And so when we come to the story of Jesus, you know, he is really the ultimate main character. And so we often kind of expect that same thing to happen. Right? We're almost expecting, yeah, he gets arrested, but that's okay. That's all part of the plan. He's going to escape. But if I can sort of give away the the end of the story, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but the book's been out for about 2,000 years. Um, Jesus doesn't escape, does he? Jesus doesn't escape. In fact, he is put to death on a cross. And so a little part of you wonders, I mean, maybe something just went wrong. Maybe he didn't really mean for that to happen because who would make a plan where at the end you are killed? That's not a very good plan. But as we read our passage this morning, as we open up to John chapter 18, I want you to consider whether or not Jesus intended this to happen. Whether or not he meant to get arrested and whether or not he was in control during this time. So with that in mind, let me invite you to read with me John chapter 18 I'm going to start in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. 
It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's as far as we'll read this morning. Would you pray with me? Father... Father, this morning as we consider, as we consider what Jesus has done on our behalf, Father, I I pray, would you make our hearts truly grateful, that we would be thankful for the incredible grace and mercy that you have shown to us, that you would actually impact our hearts, that we might even imitate Jesus at this point. Lord, might we serve you in all that we do. And I pray this morning as we consider your word, would you find our hearts soft and receptive to what you have to say to us. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we read through this passage, we we really start to understand Jesus is actually in control at this point. In fact, he's in far more control than anyone being arrested actually should be right? He knows what is going to be happening. And so as we work through this passage, I I want us to see a couple of things, right? I want us to see a couple of things. The first is perhaps the most obvious. It's, It's the authority of Jesus, that Jesus actually is in control at this point. But I also want us then to notice his purpose. If he is actually in control, why is he doing this and why does it matter? And finally, I want us to see, what is the reaction of his disciples? How do the disciples respond at this point? All right, well, let's look at our passage. Come back to verse 1 with me. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, right? Now, that is, these are all of the words that Jesus has been talking, right? Chapter 13, all the way to the end of chapter 17. Jesus has had a lot of words, And so it's the same night we find out Jesus has just finished talking. He's just finished praying for his disciples. And now that he's finished, it says he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, or the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, right? So if you know anything about what Jerusalem looks like, Jerusalem's up on this hill. Temple Mount is right at the top. 
But actually, as you come down the Temple Mount, you get into the Kidron Valley, and it comes up on the other side, what we call the Mount of Olives, right? Now, it's actually not that far away. It probably takes him, you know, 20 minutes or so to walk there. It's, it's not a far walk, but he's outside of the city at this point. And we know he goes there in order to pray. Now, John doesn't actually mention that in his gospel, in his account of Jesus' life, but the other three gospels that we have actually do mention this, right? They, they point out uh, a number of things that John just simply doesn't talk about. And so they tell us that Jesus went there in order to be praying because he actually knew what was going to be taking place, and Jesus is under an incredible amount of stress, right? Luke records what Jesus is praying. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. See, the picture that Luke gives us here is Jesus in, in agony. He is, he is weak, he is tired, he is needing an angel just to come and strengthen him so that he can actually keep going. He's under stress, right? Going to the cross was not easy for Jesus. Sometimes we think as if he just walks in impassionately and it's no problem. No, Jesus actually struggled. He was struggling at this point. But what's so interesting is while Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point this out, John doesn't say anything about that, does he? In fact, in our passage, we're not given anything about what Jesus was even doing in that garden. Now, it's not because John is saying, well, it didn't happen. Actually, what he's doing here is he is refocusing what we are looking at. He's highlighting something else. In fact, he's highlighting the authority that Jesus has at this point. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Isn't that so interesting? Jesus knows that there are people there who are chasing after, after him, that they're going to be arresting him. He even knows Judas has gone off to betray him. And so you'd think if Jesus had any intention of running, he wouldn't go back to the very same spot he always did, would he? No, he goes back to his regular spot, even the place Judas knows he will be. See, Jesus wasn't confused about this. He wasn't it wasn't a mystery as to what was about to happen. You remember all the way back in chapter 13, at the beginning of this whole evening, all the disciples are sitting around wondering, because Jesus has been telling them, one of you is going to betray me, and they're wondering, who is it, who is it, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one that I give this piece of bread to. And he gives it to Judas, looks at him and says, now do what you are going to do. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to. And so in verse 3 we read, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. All right, these guys are heading out in the middle of the night in order to go and arrest Jesus. Now, for us, we kind of look at that and we're like, well, yeah, that's when you arrest people is in the middle of the night, right? It's... That's sort of expected for us. But you've got to remember, this is in a day before electric light. 
There's no street lamps. There's no flashlights that you can take. There's no, you know, car headlights or anything like that. Actually, it's dark. So if you're going to go out and actually try and find someone in the dark, you've got to take all these torches and lamps, but you're also doing that because you don't want anyone to see what's about to happen. See, that's why they go out in the middle of the night when Jesus is outside of the city to arrest him. They don't want anyone to know, right? They don't want to actually start a riot, right? This was all taking place during a big Jewish feast, during Passover, right? So there is, the city of Jerusalem is packed full, and it is sort of a powder keg, if you will, of sort of insurrection, Right? Every time they have this Passover, they get a whole bunch of Roman guards to come in and keep peace because they don't want anything to happen. And so that's why when Judas goes and grabs a bunch of guards, there's actually a bunch of Roman guards there. Right? When it says um, that he procured these band of soldiers, that's specifically Roman guards. There was a bunch of Roman guards that came. And then on top of that, there were these officers from the chief priests. That would be sort of temple guards and then Pharisees as well. So you've got these three groups of people who actually don't really get along that well, right? They're not all buddy-buddy with one another, yet here, suddenly they're united in order to try and come and arrest Jesus. They have these very strange unity, and it seems as though now the entire world is united against Jesus. You have Jews and the Gentiles standing against him. And yet, verse 4 comes in. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus knows. He wasn't worried. He wasn't surprised by anything that was happening that night. In fact, he knew what was going on. And he doesn't run. In fact, he does the exact opposite, doesn't he? Right? Verse 4, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus is actually taking charge. They show up, and instead of them, you know, taking charge, Jesus actually is the one who starts this whole interrogation. Who are you looking for? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, we'll come back to that comment about Judas. But the soldiers show up, and they are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replies with, I am he. And then one of the weirdest things in this passage happens, right? Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why on earth is that happening? Right? Just, just to, so that we all understand what's going on. Here's a group of armed men who are going out to arrest this guy. They walk up, they say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus responds, I'm he. And they all fall backwards. I mean, what is going on? Why on earth are these soldiers suddenly frightened of Jesus? Aren't they there to arrest that guy? If he is identifying himself Normally, you'd say, well, okay, let's go arrest him. However, if you've been walking with us through John, you're probably starting to put a few of those pieces together, right? When Jesus says, I am he, very literally, it's just, I am. 
And all throughout John's gospel, he has been peppering in these phrases. Jesus keeps on referring to himself as this, I am. And he does so because he's actually taking on the name of God. In the Old Testament, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. Right? It's this name, Yahweh. It was the name of God, and it was so revered even by the Jewish people that they wouldn't use it. They wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't actually even say the name. They would just simply say, Lord, instead, because they didn't want to profane God's name. When they wrote it, they didn't even write it out completely because, again, they don't want to make a spelling error and offend God. And so now Jesus shows up, and he's starting to use it to talk about himself. In fact, John 8, there's a very clear example. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in case you think, well, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't catch what he was saying. It's kind, of a, you know, it's kind of hidden. Actually, right after that, the Pharisees, they pick up rocks because they're going to kill him on the spot for doing something like that. No, they actually, they understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. That's what Jesus says he's there to do. Uh, John chapter 17, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people. Right? Jesus claims to be able to manifest the very name, the character, the person of God to these people. And so when this group of soldiers come to arrest him, Jesus says, I want you to realize who I am. I want you to realize that, in fact, I'm God himself, and you need to understand who it is that you are here to arrest. But here's the question that still bugs me. Here's the question that still bugs me, because I've read this before, and I've known that. I've known that Jesus refers to himself as God. But why do they fall back? Here's a bunch of Roman guards who are falling back. That doesn't make sense. Imagine you're an RCMP officer, and you've been sent out to arrest someone. Let's say his name's Tommy. You've been sent out to arrest Tommy. You show up, you and 20 other officers, and you say, are you Tommy? Yes, and I want you to know I'm God. Would you fall back? No, you'd probably roll your eyes. You'd say, "Mm mm-hmm, let's go, Tommy, and put the handcuffs on him, right? You're not going to fall back in terror just because of that. So why are these guys falling down? It's bothered me for a long time, but I think here's why. You see, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for some time now. For about a week, he has been out teaching people. He's been doing signs and miracles. And while we normally think of Jesus just kind of talking with his disciples, or maybe there's a crowd there, Actually, we need to realize the guards were listening to him as well. Actually, the soldiers were listening to Jesus. Earlier in the gospel, the Pharisees try the same thing. They try and arrest Jesus. And this is what happens. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. See, they'd been listening to the teaching of Jesus, and and they were stunned. They didn't just go arrest him because actually the way he talked was completely different than anyone else. And in fact, in these last couple weeks before this 
before Jesus is arrested. In these last two weeks, Jesus has actually been doing a lot. You can go back, look at verse, or chapters 11 and 12. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In fact, he comes into the city and there are people praising and cheering for him. He's doing signs and wonders. People are being healed. In fact, there's a voice, an audible voice from heaven that is talking directly to this man. And so when the soldiers show up on that night, they've actually seen what Jesus has been doing. They've been watching him. They have been seeing his, not only his teaching, but actually of things he's doing. They're going out to arrest the guy who just the other week raised a man from the dead. They're going out to arrest a guy that God himself spoke to. They may have even heard that very voice. So when they show up and Jesus says, I want you to know I am Yahweh, they fall back because they actually believe him. They actually believe what Jesus has been saying. You see, anyone can claim to be God. It's not that hard. All you have to do is be crazy. But actually, Jesus doesn't just claim to be God. In fact, he proves it as well. So when these guys show up, they are shaking in their boots. They are actually frightened of who Jesus is and actually the power that he has. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Jesus wants his disciples to know that even though these guys are coming in the middle of the night to try and arrest me, it is not their authority that is allowing them to do it. In fact, it's mine. I am the one. I have the authority to lay down my life. And so here we're at a bit of a tipping point, right? Jesus has these guys, they're on the ground in front of them. And at this point, Jesus could really do anything he wants. He probably could have told them, all right, guys, now get out of here. Leave. You're not going to do this. He could have just left himself. He could have run away. He could have done a thousand other things. But what does he do? Verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus snaps them back out of their shock, out of their sort of stupor and says, do you remember what you're here to be doing? Do you remember what you're here to do? You're here to actually be arresting me. Right? Jesus almost forces the issue and says, come on guys, this is what you're supposed to be doing here. And so... Jesus is clearly the one who's in control. But but let me ask you the question, does any of that really matter? I mean, does it really matter? Verse 12 would probably end the exact same way, right? The band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. You could say Jesus is in control or not. Does it make any difference? I think the answer is yes. 
You see, John highlights this for a very specific reason. He wants us to realize that Jesus intended to go to the cross. That was his purpose. That was his mission. It was always so that he would end up dying on the cross. In fact, he was determined to follow God's commands, even to the very point of death. And so here's what I want us to consider. Here's what I think we can learn from that. See, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we are to carry on his example, should we not follow God's commands with that same level of intention? Should we not actually intentionally be following after Jesus? See, I think it's so natural, so easy to fall into this trap that says, well, I'm sure I will be obedient when the time comes. I'll just kind of, I'll kind of wait for that to happen. I'll kind of just, you know, I'm sure my obedience will come naturally. Somehow, I'm sure I'll just walk in faithfulness to God. See, Jesus actually went out of his way in order to be faithful to what God had called him. Sometimes I think we just expect it to fall into our lap, right? God calls us to be sharing our faith, and we kind of sit back and say, well, I'll just wait until someone actually asks me, until someone comes up and says, I want to be a Christian, can you explain the gospel to me? I'm not saying that will never happen, but if they don't even know you're a Christian, how could they ask you? Unless we actually take that intentional step and begin those conversations to ask people to talk about our faith, how could they even ask? See, sometimes I think we're just waiting for something to fall in our lap instead of actively being obedient to what God calls us to. See, the example of Jesus is not that he's just waiting and sitting back. He's actually going out and out of his way to intentionally follow after God. You know, sometimes I hear people say something like, well, I'm just waiting for God to change my heart, and then I will blank. And I fill in the blank with all sorts of things. I'm waiting for him to change my heart before I forgive this person, before I start reading my Bible, before I stop looking at pornography, before I stop drinking, before I start loving my wife as Christ loved the church. You see, we can sound very spiritual in our disobedience. God calls us to be faithful to his commands. That means we actually need to take a step. We actually need to go out of our way and say, you know what, what's it going to take for me to be faithful to God? To actually follow Jesus' example here that says, I'm going to walk in obedience, even, even if it costs me my life. Jesus went out of his way to be faithful to God's call. If we are his disciples, we ought to learn to do the same. Jesus was intentionally faithful. He had the authority in this time, and he used it in order to be faithful to God, but then ask the question, well, what was the purpose? Why was he doing this? If Jesus is pushing to go to the cross, why? What reason could he possibly have? And the truth is, he's actually already talked about this again and again. 
Most recently, just last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The reason Jesus wants to go to the cross is so that the glory of God might actually be seen on earth. You see, the cross is the most glorious expression of who God is that we have. It is his greatest revelation of his character, his love, his justice. His majesty is put on display on the cross. It's both his love for us and also his justice combined. Look at verse 8 again. Jesus answered, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus reminds them what they're there to do. Why? So that his disciples would not be lost. Now, in sort of the, the, the immediate context, Jesus is protecting their lives, right? He's making sure that this group of guards don't end up hurting his disciples. But in the greater context, we know that Jesus is actually going to the cross, not simply for their physical lives, but so that they might be spiritually taken care of. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, it's the eternal life that Jesus was looking for. That's what he was focused on. He was going to the cross in order to secure the fact that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. They would not face the wrath of God, but in fact, Jesus would die in their place. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is going to be hung on a tree on the cross. Why? It's not for his sins. It's not because he had done anything wrong. It's not because there was a curse on him. It was because it hung over his disciples. But because they had sinned, because they had fallen short of God's glory, he was intentionally stepping in their place. In fact, he was going to die. He was going to take that curse, take that punishment for, his, for their sins so that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. He died in our place, so if that we here today would place our faith in him, we would be saved. In fact, eternally secured and taken care of. You see, this is why the cross becomes the greatest display of God's glory. It is the full weight of the justice of God against sin and the love of God to redeem his people come together. Jesus is going to the cross in order to keep his disciples safe. He's going there on purpose. In fact, we need to see Jesus intentionally went there. It wasn't just sort of the plan gone wrong and then he kind of turned it around at the last moment. Actually, that was his purpose. Right? It's a little bit like giving someone a gift. Right? Now, we often say, well, you know, it's the thought that matters. 
Now, usually we say that when the gift is really bad and we kind of want to get ourselves out, well, you know, it's, it's the thought that matters, right? But the truth is, the, the intention behind a gift does matter. And in fact, the greater the intention, the more that gift ends up meaning, right? If you actually craft something yourself, you, you, you can sculpt it, you can make it yourself for someone else, that becomes so much more meaningful than if you give them a gift and say, well, I got this, it was a free sample at Costco. Here you go. Right? The intention actually matters. And so the reason that John pulls this out, the reason he highlights it so much, what is Jesus doing, is because he actually wants us to see, do you understand the love of God for you? He actually went to the cross. He focused himself. He did that intentionally so that we might actually come to realize how great the love of God is for his people. See, the intention of Jesus His purposeful nature is not only a challenge for us to imitate, oh, it is a blessing for us to rejoice in that God has loved us so much. We see the authority of Jesus. We see his purpose. The last thing I want us to see this morning from our passage is the response of his disciples. How did his disciples react Right? There are two disciples that end up being mentioned in this passage, Judas and Peter. And now both of these men end up actually misunderstanding Jesus. They actually both miss the point. Right? Judas is easy to see. Right? Judas, he betrays Jesus, he turns his back, he rejects Jesus. And John points out in verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, with the soldiers. Right? John adds this little note, not because he wants us to realize where Judas was standing physically. It's actually a point of how he reacted to Jesus. Turned his back on him and said, I want nothing more to do with you. I'm going to throw my lot in for a few extra coins. But then there's Peter as well. Verse 10 It says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, right? Peter wants to show just how devoted he really is, right? He's going to go out and he is going to protect Jesus from these armed guards. And whether or not, you know, Peter intended to cut off this man's ear or maybe he was just really bad with a sword, I don't know. But either way, Jesus tells him, stop, right? Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus says to Peter, that is not what we are here to do, right? John doesn't record it, but Luke tells us, actually, Jesus ends up healing this man. He touches his ear and restores it. But the point that John wants us to see is that Jesus is still intentionally following after God's commands. And you see, Peter's response to actually take up and fight wasn't necessarily a bad one, right? He wants to, he wants to protect Jesus. He wants to protect his teacher, his master. That's, that's a good thing. The irony is Jesus doesn't need his protection. Actually, Peter's the one who needs to be protected. Peter needs Jesus to save him, not the other way around. 
You see, what Jesus tells him is that, look, Peter, actually, it's not done in your strength. You don't accomplish God's will in your strength. It's not about how good a guy you are. It's not about your self-determination or your you know, willpower that you can muster up. Actually, what you need is to be relying on God at this time. See, the disciples react to Jesus in two, way, in two ways. Judas betrays him and Peter almost ignores him. See, I think, to be honest, we're far more in danger of looking like Peter at this point. We, we try and do what God asks us. We try and almost want to defend Jesus against all of these attacks instead of just relying on his power and relying on the grace that he gives us. See, we're not called to protect Jesus, to try and make him seem better, more culturally relevant, or, or sometimes less culturally relevant, right? Sometimes what he says is far too clear, and we don't like that. I think what Jesus would say is, stop trying to save me. I didn't lose control. Right? Rather, we are called to be faithful to him. We are called to place our trust in him and lead others to be doing the same. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, Jesus had in mind what was ultimately most important. He wanted to save his disciples from the wrath of God against their sin. That's where Jesus was heading. That's where Jesus was going. And his disciples didn't get it. They would either try and do it themselves or simply reject him outright. So the question then is, how will you respond? How will you respond to what Jesus has done? As we close, I'm just going to invite the worship team to come forward, as well as our prayer team make their way to the front But I want you to consider this question. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Because it's easy for us to keep going and saying, I'll just do it in my own strength. If I can can muster up, I will almost save myself. I can get over this. I can do this by myself. Some of you here today, you might be at a point where you just need to trust in Jesus for the very first time. Or you need to come to what Jesus has done, and simply say, Lord, thank you. I trust in your grace and yours alone. Or maybe you've been trying to do this all by yourself. Maybe you've been trying to walk in faithfulness in your own strength, and you need to be reminded what it means to trust in him, to walk in faithfulness to him out of the strength that he supplies. So as we sing, as we respond in prayer and worship, I just want to encourage you, take a time and consider that. We have people here who'd love to pray with you, love to encourage you, love to, to call you into faithfulness to Jesus Christ as he is faithful unto the plan of God.
Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for the grace that you have given for the death he died on our behalf. Father, we are grateful for your mercy towards us that while we were weak, Christ has died for us. Father, we confess we are not strong enough to save ourselves. Lord, help us. Come to us. Help us understand the great mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen.